This podcast is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on Sirius XM. Welcome to our Behind the Markets podcast. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz. Alongside Wharton Finance Professor Jeremy Siegel, we tackle the latest market trends every week on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, Sirius XM, Channel 132. Our guest consists of experts like the world's leading authority on long-term economic growth, Bob Gordon. We will continue to see jobs created rather than destroyed. Former chair of the Federal Reserve, Janet Yellen. I mean, I don't think either of us ever expected that we would live through a financial crisis. Or even the head of the Digital India Foundation, Arvind Gupta. The reason that people are talking about India is massive digitization and financial inclusion that we have done over the last couple of years. Enjoy this week's show. Welcome to Behind the Markets here on Business Radio, powered by the Warren School. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz, Global Head of Research at Wisdom Tree. My co-host is Warren Finance Professor Jeremy Siegel, author of Stocks for Long Run and the Future for Investors. Also joining us on the program today is Kevin Flanagan, who is the head of fixed income strategy at Wisdom Tree. Please note Kevin and I are registered representatives of Foresight Fund Services. Professor Siegel is a senior advisor to Wisdom Tree. Our discussion is not tied to the offer or sale of investment products. And the views of our guests are their own and not those of Wisdom Tree affiliates. We have a really interesting show. We'll be talking with a, a investor, a strategist who's been looking at emerging markets for his career. A lot of interesting views on the global investing landscape. We talk about U.S. compared to foreign markets. What are the key drivers of rates and currencies around the world? Um, but before we get to our guest, Professor Siegel, we're Dow dip below thirty thousand a little bit here. How are you thinking about the end of the year? Yeah, a lot of cross currents. Uh, clearly, um, I mean, obviously, the vaccine approval that we got yesterday uh, uh, was expected, but welcome. Uh, we really need rapid uh, deployment of it. I mean, uh, Scott Gottlieb had said we could actually, uh, we, we should uh, give more doses with the expectation second doses are there. The data that Pfizer presented shows that actually after five to seven days of the first dose, there's already good immunity, and we need to get it out there very, very fast. But, you know, nonetheless, that's a decision by the government to uh, store the second doses rather than give them out first. Um, uh, You know, uh, given the 3,000 per rate that could go up, um, but even Gottlieb said it will be on the down path in uh, uh, January, even before the vaccine hits uh, that. But clearly that's, that's very, very important. And then we, we get the wrangling that is never-ending about the stimulus bill. It would be really welcome. Um, again, as I've said, for, we, we could get through without it, but clearly uh, right here in Pennsylvania, uh, and it's happening everywhere else. Now we're closing all indoor dining um, everywhere. Um, so uh, it, it's going to be a real tough uh, December um, and early January. So we really would want a stimulus over here. Um, in the meantime, we have, of course, these incredible speculation <laughs> with these IPOs, uh, DoorDash, uh, Airbnb, uh, nearly priced twice their offering price. Um, uh, you know, there's there's a lot of speculation in, in this market. Again, nothing like 99, 2000, but there are echoes in certain areas. And um, uh, one, you know, one, one has to be on the alert for that. Um, given that, I'm still very bullish on next year with the vaccines and the buildup of liquidity. I want to speak on the buildup of liquidity. Um, the last two weeks have seen an absolutely unbelievable increase in the M1 money supply, which you know I've been monitoring very closely for months and uh, has been the basis of my bullish expectations. Um, we've seen an increase of over $800 billion in two weeks. Um, I don't know why. Uh, let me speculate. When I look at M2, which includes savings account, I do not see a big increase, which means people are moving money from savings to checking um, uh, at the present time. And what might be is an early move for Christmas shopping because people have to order early to make sure deliveries are on time and they might be shifting funds from savings accounts to checking accounts. Um, 
that's the only explanation I can think of because if if this money is really there, and this is before the stimulus, if we get a second stimulus, we'll even be more, uh, this will add explosive liquidity to the economy that's already been there for 2021. But again, uh, uh, let's just see if this is just a transient increase due to the early move of uh, money from savings accounts to um, checking accounts. Uh, the economy for 2021 looks as good as it has for months, um, and I still expect a strong economic boom and equity uh, performance uh, in the next 12 months. We're talking a little bit about uh, rates, and uh, and we have one of my strategists, Kevin Flanagan, on. I, I think he has a question for you. Kevin, you want to jump in here? Yeah. Hi, Dr. Siegel. Um, a very fascinating fact, like this, this shift from the savings into the checking. Do you think that paves the way for consumer spending, or do you think it has more to do with the fact that consumers need to pay their bills? And so they're making this shift and taking money out of savings for their key type of expenditures rather than actually looking to, you know, boost retail sales. Right. Um, now, don't forget, all, all this money supply debt is what's called seasonally adjust, adjusted, which means that every Christmas this is adjusted for the normal movement uh, into cash and into liquidity. Uh, the, so it, 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 this tremendous increase in the M1 money supply, and I, you know, I, it, we've gotten two, it's reported weekly Thursday afternoon, and yesterday we got a second huge increase. Um, uh, so it, it's more than the normal, and again, I, I think it is people saying, uh, those that use debit cards uh, are saying, okay, I've I got to move from my savings account to my debit card account um, uh, to make sure I have cash. I want to order early because, uh, uh, so maybe we're seeing that. And the reason I'm, I'm saying that is because if we look at M2, which includes savings accounts, we don't see an increase. So there's a big decline in savings accounts, a big rise in this uh, transactions accounts, uh, which I could be early Christmas shopping. It's enormous. I mean, I've never seen a bulge uh, like this. In fact, last week I thought it was a data mistake, but now it's, it's replicated itself for the second week. Uh, I found no explanation yet from the Fed, which they should be supplying uh, because it's such an unusual increase, but I think I think it has to do with early movers. Um, more, uh, I, I don't know how good this Christmas will be. Obviously, with the closed down restaurants, in shop uh, ordering is going to be restricted nationwide. Um, uh, we saw that the jobless claims uh, that was a disappointing m- number yesterday, and uh, given given COVID, I. I would say we're not looking for a good Christmas. We we need that stimulus, and and um, uh, I believe it will come. I can't believe <laughs> um, Congress will be the one to steal Christmas, as the Grinch stole Christmas. Um, uh, something will come out of all this. Kevin, maybe I could get you to we'll make a, a quick comment on, on rates and that we'd have the professor to react to, and you, you may have another question there for the professor. Yeah, thanks, Jar. Just... You know, it's interesting on that note, Professor, if this is a harbinger maybe of a solid Christmas shopping season, I I definitely want to get your take on this because I've been following the Atlanta Fed GDP now for a while. And the last I saw, they were actually calling for 11%. GDP for the fourth quarter. Do you do you think that has any legs to stand about on? About consensus. I mean, uh, from what I'm seeing, five and a half, which has been raised from an early three. Um, uh, again. Uh, it depends on Christmas shopping. I mean, you know, December is is this is the time. So, will this you know will people just shift online um, and not go to stores? They're not going to restaurants. Don't forget holiday parties and all that has been a part of Christmas spending, which is obviously going to be curtailed. Um, uh, uh, you know, my my feeling is is that uh, the the GDP now of, of the Atlantic Fed very welcome, but I do find that they sometimes go a little bit too in extremes on uh, on both sides up and down. So more conservative are are five percent. And honestly, I, I, and again, I'm not uh, a, 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 you know professional forecaster on quarterly GDP, 
uh, given the, the virus cases, um, uh, it's going to be hard to even match 5 to 6% annual basis. But the, again, I think the most important thing to remember is, as we keep on saying, stocks are looking forward to 2021. Uh, you know, uh, we only we'll have three weeks to write off this dismal year. Um, they're looking ahead, and the vaccines are going to be distributed quickly, um, and it's going to mean a new world. And that buildup of liquidity is going to mean a boom in 2021. So no matter how this Christmas season turns out because of the you know current surge in, in COVID, uh, what's going on in 2021 and then into 2022, which I'm very positive on, I think is uh, much more important uh, to the uh, equity markets. Professor, that's a great way to end. Thank you so much for your time. Have a good weekend. Thank you. We'll see you next week. <clears throat> We're gonna, you're listening to Behind the Markets on SiriusXM 132. I'm Jeremy Schwartz. I have Kevin Flanagan, who's the head of Fixed Income Strategy at Wisdom Tree. We'll be spending the rest of the hour with a, in a conversation with Karthik Sankuran, who's, who's been focused on the interaction of politics, economics, finance, working most, most recently as a strategist for the Eurasia Group. Karthik, welcome to Behind the Markets. Uh. Thank you very much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Very Thanks. Uh, so w- tell our listeners a little bit about your background. Uh, you, before working at Eurasia Group, also working at Emerging Markets Hedge Funds. I guess give our listeners a little bit about yourself, how you started studying the markets and your background before we drill into a lot of the interesting areas you're focused on. Uh, sure. Um, you know, I, uh, I'm actually a historian by training. I, I, grew up in, I grew up in India, moved to the U.S. when I was 17, and then studied modern European history, both as an undergraduate, as a graduate student. Um, my specialty is Italian, is, is kind of modern Europe. Um, and I almost completed a dissertation in 19th century Italian history before I discovered that uh, there were very few jobs in that field, so I needed to retool pretty dramatically. Uh, I got into financial journalism, and then through a series of lucky breaks, I ended up um, as a research editor at a company called AIG Trading, um, and I was brought there a week before the bot devalued in, in 1997. So the emerging markets desk said, uh, you seem to know something about emerging markets politics. Um, come over here and sit with us. Um, it was also... Uh, a shop that had, um, uh, you know, some great economists working there. Uh, and so I got to sit with them, learn a lot more about, uh, about, econ- about economics. And I was there for several years, did a few, and essentially became a currency strategist there. Moved to a couple of other places on the sell side and then moved to an emerging markets macro hedge fund uh, where we traded a lot of foreign exchange again. And... Um, foreign exchange rates uh, and kind of very top-down uh, macro-level macro level equities. Um, and I'm through all of this, you know, as I'm trying to uh, explain, uh, you know, in CV for my career, uh, kind of put a little bit of cohesion on it. I'd say that the things I've been interested in starting out from school are themes of backwardness, catch-up growth, state capacity, what it means for markets, what it means for the economy, uh, and then with a special focus on Europe in particular because I was a European historian and I worked at a shop that was very, very involved with, uh, with Eurozone politics. My mentors were, were serious Eurosceptics. So, um, so I did that. So basically I was in the markets from 1997 until 2013, um, decided I wanted to change of pace. I'd been a client of Eurasia Group and then moved there um, to kind of help out this unpicking more of the interaction between markets and um, uh, between markets and political economy. So it, that's kind of it. Yeah. That's kind of it in a package. Um, but there were a lot of lucky breaks along the way. <laughs> It's interesting to hear people's career stories there and how you get from one to the next place. I mean, as a, as being trained under the Eurosceptics, and we have sort of headlines every day about Brexit and how things are evolving in Europe, maybe give us your general sense. Is this European politics zone, how's that, how's that going to work? Um, I mean, my personal view, and there was, I had this massive conversion uh, almost exactly 10 years ago from being a deep Eurosceptic to being... Um, 
a believer that uh, that that it would survive, which um, and you know potentially even thrive. But I think one thing that's very clear, uh, and that's kind of been brought to the fore by the experience of Brexit, is in 2016, as we were heading into um, the Brexit, everyone was concerned that. Britain leaving would increase centrifugal forces elsewhere in the EU that other people would decide to leave. Uh, we were always kind of skeptical of that. Um, uh, you know, my view is that actually Britain has such a good deal in the EU. It's not a member of Schengen. It's not a member of the common currency. Um, you know, it's a... It, 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 it's a it's it, it's it's a net contributor, but even for them, leaving will be very difficult, um, as it has as it has turned out to be. And kind of took the view that instead of increasing centrifugal forces in your in the eurozone, it might actually increase uh, cohesion outside uh, for various reasons. But one of them being that you're kind of removing the biggest pole around which other kind of Eurosceptic forces can gather. And that's pretty. I think that's pretty much the way it's turned out, um, seeing remarkable unity in the EU27 on this issue, uh, the other members, uh, whereas you're seeing kind of multiple fissures kind of being exposed within UK politics itself, most obviously in Scotland, but not necessarily exclusively. Um, so I think that's, you know, this is kind of a test case of... Um, of what's happened of, of of the cohesion of the eurozone but i think apart from that what you've seen is a series of experience on the european side serially one after another that have affirmed uh the commitment of the member states most importantly germany uh to the project and i think now, my my mentor used to say that the euro will fail because it's a political project, not an economic one. And I would kind of invert that by saying, well, maybe it will succeed precisely because the politics will step in and the survival of the EU and the eurozone is recognized as a key national interest of Germany. So one after another, you had you know the EFSF almost exactly 10 years ago, the fiscal bailout fund, uh, then... German sign-on to Mario Draghi's whatever-it-takes speech, uh, then quantitative easing. Now, just uh, you, know, a, you know, just this week, we got a bi- we got a big we got a deal on common debt issuance. So, repeatedly at every step, I think the revealed preference of Germany is to um, do what it takes, maybe grudgingly, maybe too late. Uh, but always to do more of whatever is necessary to keep the show on the road. And I think that's one of the lessons we kind of have to take away uh, from the from the 2010s. It's one of the single biggest things that's happened. Uh, this project that everyone thought was a failure has done a lot, a lot to improve its prospects for survival and thriving. It's interesting. I mean, it's you could say who benefits from some of the weaker countries in there, like on a currency perspective. I mean, Germany is being one of the big global exporting manufacturing powerhouses. If they left, let's say they left and everybody else stayed together, you could say that the German new currency would strengthen and they'd be sort of hurt. So in some ways, the others drag them down and, and help. What, what What's your sense on the currency itself, where the euro is? When you think about all these other things you follow in the currency markets, do you have a long-term view um, where it is today compared to you know, let's say looking out four or five years from now. I mean, I think I think the uh, I think it's likely that the euro will appreciate uh, you know somewhat somewhat further from here, um, and I think this is partly a reflection of uh, my views. Partly a reflection of a couple of things. One is just the um, uh, you know gradual understanding that. The eurozone is in fact a viable is in fact a viable project. I think the second thing here, and this is something that you know we we kind of met on Twitter, and uh, one of the points that uh, you know that uh, that Robin Brooks from the IAF has been making is that if you look, it's kind of mistaken to look at um, euro area current account surpluses as contributing to the um, as contributing to euro strength when they're in fact being driven by depressed uh, by by depressed spending 
Now, I, I had pointed out that there are two ways you can kind of deal with an economy, a current account surplus economy that's uh, not doing, not, not growing as strongly as it should. One is by allowing the currency to weaken, um, which may or um, which may or may not be ideal and will certainly annoy the rest of the world, uh, <laughs> particularly the United States. And the other is by doing more to create a single a single financial a single financial market to reduce kind of credit stresses in some of the vulnerable places and by uh, relying more on fiscal stimulus rather than monetary slash exchange rate stimulus in order to um, get the economy growing again. And I think the Europeans have kind of realized that. I think there's also, I mean, kind of on the dollar side of the story, um, which is part of this, uh, you know, kind of the broader theme that we're, you know, that we're, that's, I think, worth thinking about is we go through, we seem to go through these 10-year cycles where people think, Everything, you know, nothing is going to change. And there's kind of somewhat inertia built into thinking that, you know, the the most recent past will translate into the future. And, you know, so I think that, you know, we can talk about this some more separately. I think, you know, probably the end of, you know, one one dollar appreciation cycle um, and we can go the other way. But I think the flip side to that is I don't think it's necessarily going to be like 2002, 2008, because when the euro went from 81 to 160, I doubt we'll get to such high levels more because of what's happened on the U.S. balance of payments side. I think one of the critical things I mentioned, the euro's on surviving is one of the key stories of the 2010s. The other is shale, which I think gets ignored a lot or not. People don't pay enough attention to the fact that once the U.S. became, you know, uh, essentially self-sufficient in energy, at least kind of on a net basis, uh, what it did was improve U.S. balance of payments dynamics very substantially. Right, the current account deficit was about six percent of GDP in 2000. At the end of 2006, it's kind of tracking three now. Um, I think that's a really big deal, you know, because historically, uh, very large U.S. external financing requirements have required very high rates to keep the dollar strong. Um, and, you know, relative to the rest of the world, I don't think we're there. So I think, you know, if you kind of – but the other thing that Shale did was it also improved the balance of payments dynamics, not just of the United States, but of the other major oil importing parts of the world, which luckily – are also very sizable. So it's the Eurozone, it's and it's East Asia and South Asia. So I think under those circumstances, there's an argument for us to get, you know, you know, over the next few years to get up to you know, get up to one thirty five ish, something like that wouldn't surprise me. I think this but a full recurrence of the early two thousands or the early mid two thousands, you know, one fifty five, one sixty, I think that's unlikely. Yeah, let, let me just introduce our guests here. We're talking with we're talking with Karthik Sankuran and uh, Kevin Clanigan from Wisdom Tree. Kevin, I know you wanted to jump in with a question for Karthik, so uh, go ahead. Yeah, hi, thanks, Jar. Karthik, nice to meet you. Um, what I wanted Great, to ask you. you, you know, interesting stuff on, on the eurozone here, and something that I know we've been watching very carefully here: the beginning of the EU issuing bonds, uh, starting off with the sure bonds just over the last month or so, which have gone very, very well. Um, you could make the case oversubscribed, seeing them initially coming, pricing right around where French oats are, and, and then breaking through there. Um, and then the EU recovery bonds, that's kind of like the next step in this process as we flip the calendar to, to 2021. And I know conversations that I've been having uh, with a lot of our European clients uh, seem to be looking forward to it, that maybe we finally have an alternative or a triple-A alternative to Bunds. Um, so I was curious to see, A, what, what you think about, so far, the, the EU program, just your thoughts on it, themselves issuing their bonds, and what that means for that experiment, a, a, as you mentioned, and what you think could happen to Bund yields. Could, could perhaps, if there is another alternative out there, could that result, not obviously it's not the only factor, but it, could it be a, a factor that could result in perhaps Bun yields being less negative in 2021. 
Um, I mean, on the first, I think it's, you know, it's very clearly a big step, right? Because um, this was, you know, it's the serial breaking of taboos is the story of the Eurozone, right? So it's between uh, kind of, you know, support by the central bank for uh, fiscal expansion in for fiscal expansion in the, per- in the periphery, which is, uh, you know, which, which now goes back as a promise to 2012 and as a reality to 2014. And there was always this, well, it's not really a fiscal union yet. Um, I would argue that in some sense, if you think of a consolidated private sector balance sheet that includes both central banks and fiscal authorities, um, and a a euro actually being a joint and several liability of the eurozone in a sense we already crossed a certain rubicon by 2014 with 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 with, 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 with qe uh but i think just in terms of um the message that it sends of increasing commitment to the project that's important you know it makes you know it just becomes harder and harder to to reverse not that and not to mention that ever fewer that I think significantly fewer, fewer people want to every step of the way. I think the other thing about this is that um, a, a next point that I think it's kind of right that that these that these bonds trade roughly where oats are because part of my my view is that you know France is the median eurozone country in a sense it's seventy percent core thirty percent peripherally. If you look at implied, um, you know, Taylor rules for single countries, ECB um, policy is almost right for France most of the time. Uh, the one country that's actually true of, so it makes sense that they're around there, have gone through. I think the other point is that rebunds in particular, um, to the extent that it reduces the demand for an intra-European bolt hole in case things fall completely apart and you have a broader range of alternatives that not only have the rating, but also just a kind of broader signal of commitment. Um, it should, I, I would not be surprised if it impact bond yields. I think the other point is that um, part of the story is just the sheer scale of German fiscal expansion in response to COVID. Um, you know, I don't know that in the world we're in um, until people start seeing um, you know, much more ratification of their growth expectations. Uh, this shows this shows up uh, in in yields anywhere, really. But um, I think it's definitely the case that you t- you put all these kind of structural factors together. Uh, the premium for booms as the sole safe haven asset in the eurozone. I think that should dissipate. Keep dissipating. This has been really interesting. We've got Karthik Sankaran with us for the hour. I'm Jeremy Schwartz. And Karthik, we were talking a little bit about views on Europe and and some of the the long-term developments there. What caused me to first reach out to you, you've been been tweeting about – U.S. investors, as a, or really global investors, as a thing about allocating capital around the world. A lot of people are focused on the U.S. In the U.S., we all have a home country bias. But how do you think about people's allocations, whether what the next decade should look like compared to the past decade and, and if we're under-allocated around the world? Um, I mean, I think, you know, I think the relative performance across what I think of as the big Global areas, um, which is basically, you know, the U.S. non-U.S. Um, developed markets. So, you know, to a large extent, which is to a large extent, uh, uh, Europe and Japan, and then kind of, and then and then emerging markets. I think it tends to go through cycles of outperformance and underperformance. Uh, a lot of this is relative, uh, right? So. Um, you know what I see. What I see. What I've seen a fair amount of on again on Twitter is um, this. People sometimes make fun of the notion that you should be um, that it's time to get into European equities or it's time to get into emerging market equities, um, and they go, "Yeah, look at how that's done over the last uh, ten years." And 
uh, I think to myself, oh, past performance is no guarantee of future results. That's pretty much what it says in the small print. And if you look over, look back over longer horizons, um, you know, going back to the early 1980s, for instance, uh, what you see is relative cycles where markets are driven to a greater degree by outperformance in one in one region or another, uh, and sometimes it goes, you know, it it goes. It goes terribly wrong, um, and sometimes it's just that the baton about performance gets passed to uh, gets get, get, gets gets passed to another region. And I think during that period, what's interesting is that um, you get a lot of narratives or explanations about well, this just confirms the superiority of this system versus that system. And you know, I'm just not. Kind of trading these theories is uh, is issue. So that, that was kind of a bit of a philosophical tangent, to be frank, towards the end. But I do think that if you look at where the U.S. weight in you know basic all country world index was in 2000, the early in kind of the early 2010s, I think I think about 2013, 2014, we were at 43 percent. Um, as of the end of October, we were at 58% in the in the equity. I mean, that seems to me a large move. And the question is to ask, well, why did this happen? And is it likely to continue? So, you know, I think there are three or four different aspects to that. One is... Um, uh, you know, obviously, Europe underperforming horribly for a variety of reasons, um, which, as I tried to suggest in the first half, may be in the process of getting fixed. Uh, the second is a dollar story, uh, particularly after 2014, when you get a stronger dollar and a concern about how that feeds into financial conditions for emerging markets. Um and the third is kind of a sectoral issue um, of you know the famous uh, you know the famous thing story of to the to what extent this is being driven by U.S. technology companies and a particular set of attributes um, that you know moats network effects um, uh, you know the regulatory environment and so on and the question is. Do you think that is going to continue, um, you know, over the next decade or the next seven years or you know, whatever kind of sizable chunk of time you want to you want you, you want you want to think about this, or do some of these factors um, start to reverse? Um, and I think there's a reasonable chance that these in fact do and interestingly enough i actually did a poll on this about a year ago i think we we're about 56 percent then um everyone was arguing about negative rates i said well let's do a twitter poll on where people think the u.s weight in the equity will be it was at the time i think it was around 56 percent um you know at the end of 2029 i think it was done about a year ago and a plurality came in Kind of around forty-five percent, between forty and fifty percent, which seems which seems which seems about right to me. The U.S. has always punched above its weight in terms of market in terms of market performance, market cap versus GDP, for a variety of reasons, many good ones. I just think that that's gotten a little bit stretched at this point. Some of those factors that led to the that performance uh, could go the other way. Hey, Jerry, I just wanted to throw out a, a question. Um, you know, touching on the EM side. So in, in bond land, we're always just kind of wrestling for EMD local currency. Is it a fundamental issue? Is it a currency play? Is it a little bit of both? So as we're ready to turn the calendar here to, to 2021, we've had a lot of discussions. What should we be looking at EMD? I know Jeremy, myself, and another colleague, we actually had um, a call uh, for our clients on Wisdom Tree earlier this week, where we were talking about, you know, deficits, what it could mean for the dollar, what it could mean for EM. So I'm real curious to to hear your thoughts that for investors who would be looking, say, to get involved in EM local currency debt, 
do you think it's more of a dollar play? Do you think it's more of a fundamental play or maybe a combination of both for next year? I mean, I think it's, I think it's more of, I think it's more of a dollar play. I mean, one of the things that's actually been very helpful in some sense in, 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 in emerging markets, local currency debt this year has been that over the last several years in a broad range of EM, um, you've lost the double whammy effect where rates would go up alongside the currency going down. And that was kind of your classic EM response, right? Where the currency weakened, rates which rates would shoot up. And so you would have a, a tightening of financial conditions both on the external finance side, but also because your local bond deals would react very negatively to what was happening in the currency space. I think what we've seen is that in a number of countries, um, have gained uh, a fair, you know, a fair amount of policy space in the regard, in the sense that they have been, you know, in the sense that they can cut rates. Not everybody can do this, you know, in response to cyclical downturn. Now, one of the things that um, you know, we found when I was at Eurasia is that if you kind of look at who's able to do that, uh, it comes to it helps enormously to have you know, two or three things in your favor. One is if you run large, if you, if you run large trade surpluses, particularly manufacturing surpluses, uh, then it's just easier to cut rates when your current, when your currency is weakening. And I think some of that just because, you know, obviously you have a lower external financing requirement, but apart from that, there may be this embedded market expectation that, yeah, you know, you, you have this large manufacturing sector, essentially you can uh, depreciate your way back to prosperity again. I think that the other part where that works is, uh, the other part of that is having a very credible central bank. You know, if you have a um, relatively low later currency substitution. Uh, and the good news is that I think there are two areas of the world where that holds. One is kind of... Uh, and it's helped for a while. One is surplus. One is surplus emerging East Asia, and the other, interestingly enough, is Central and Eastern Europe, where um, I think, notwithstanding the um, uh, you know the fact that you may have countries with, with deficits, there are other institutional integration mechanisms for these countries that make investors comfortable with the prospect of a currency weakening. Um, but not it not also necessarily translating into significant pressure, uh, significant pressure on duration. Uh, you know, so and I think that's because you know you have adjustment funds, you have free market access, you have labor movement. You know, you have a, a legal system that enables you to go. You know, to, if they try to do something to your bond. So there's and and the way I've been thinking about this is in a more macro framework is kind of types of integration into the global economy. And I've kind of come to feel that there are EM in and of itself is actually multiple, is several different types of countries. Um, there's that East Asian model of kind of current account surplus resulting from high manufacturing integration uh, into the global economy and you know local technological gains, technological complexity. There's the Eastern European model. And then there, are the, then there are the commodity exporters who are potentially somewhat more vulnerable, uh, particularly to what happened with shale and the and the drop in and the drop in you know and, and the drop in oil prices. So there's been a nasty story for the oil exporters there, for instance. Uh, you know, so it really makes sense, I think, to unbundle EM as an asset class into different types of emerging markets, what they export, whom they export it to, and so on. Um, now, I think in an, in an air, so to go back to the, to your, you know, to what we were saying originally, I think there's, there are sizable portions of the world, of the emerging markets world, where we've already kind of seen the resilience of duration in the face of local currency weakness. Uh, I think those areas will, will continue to do well, particularly if you see um, dollar weakness 
additional appreciation pressure on their currencies, they will likely respond by accumulating reserves and by, um, um, you know, and by holding rates lower than they otherwise might. Uh, one of the side effects of this, which turns into a circle, is the counterpart of reserve accumulation that we saw in the early 2000s with reserve diversification, which ends up playing, you know, feeding back into the euro story. The purely cyclical commodity exporters, I think what you could see, that's kind of a more of a pure um, cyclical play with, um, with, with dollar weakness and then potentially, you know, less need to try to, uh, uh, you know, hike rates to keep the currencies from, from depreciating too much. So let me reintroduce our guest. We're talking with Karthik. Let me uh, let me just re- reintroduce. We have Karthik Sankuran, who's been a strategist in emerging markets, focused on uh, politics, intersection of the currency markets, and these global allocations. Now we're talking. Uh, I'm Jeremy Schwartz. We have Kevin Flanagan, who's the head of fixed income at Wisdom Tree. Karthik, when when you think about these these shifts that might get people more, you know, less less into the U.S. and more overseas, is there a factor in the U.S. regime that might be sort of the biggest catalyst for summer rotation, whether it's in equities, whether it's in the currencies? How do you think about the sort of U.S. dominance? Well, I mean, I think I, I think there. I think I'm. I'm a dollar bear, you know, in cyclical terms. I think some of the uh, structural stuff about, uh, you know, end of dollar dominance, um, you know, is on the dollar's role in the world. I think some of that is significantly overplayed. Um, You know, that said, I do think that a world in which you have the U.S. kind of engage in a combination of, relatively loose fiscal policy and relatively loose monetary policy is not necessarily something that's that is not necessarily something that's dollar positive uh i think above and beyond that um we've seen two or three big shifts in reaction functions in the first in the monetary sphere and then in the political sphere uh, the, monetary, the monetary sphere is that I think starting in 2014, 2015, um, the Fed moved ever more explicitly towards what people call the monetary conditions approach, where it would actually tell you, uh, I mean, first implicitly and then explicitly, uh, that you know one person the dollar trade in the trade weighted dollar is equivalent to ten basis points in the, um, you know, in, in, in Fed funds. And I think Bill Dudley and Little Brainer told us that in 2015, 2016. Um, so they look, the second thing is that the Fed has just become much, much more concerned about the impact of uh, the dollar on global financial conditions. And you can see this as you trace the evolution of Fed statements on the dollar. It becomes very clear that, Unlike the Bernanke Fed, which kind of thought of, well, when the dollar is strong, everyone else can export more to the U.S., I think this Fed focuses much more on um, the dollar's impact on financial conditions outside the U.S., particularly in emerging markets. So that kind of gives you one set of monetary um, things. The other thing is that, you know, there's this old idea it goes back to Stephen Jen Morgan Stanley in the early 2000s of a so-called dollar smile, where the dollar rallies when the U.S. is doing either horribly, or you know, or the, and the world is doing horribly, or ultimately when the U.S. is doing very, very well um, relative to the rest of the world. And I think that actually makes sense if you think about periodization. These periods of uh, this dollar doing well when. Um, you know, the U.S. is doing much, much better than the rest of the world. Um, this 1981-85 Volcker, when you know U.S. real rates are U.S. real rates are, are are very high, and there's a whole range of U.S. political economy things, um, tax cuts, union busting. You know, however, you know we feel about that, that were seen as influencing. Um, the return on capital invested in the U.S. 
so there's that 81 to 85 period, and something similar happens between 1997 to 92. There's a kind of classic dollar right-hand smile events where the U.S. is doing really well. U.S. assets are doing well. I'm not sure that you know we have the conditions for for that for that right now. But the interesting thing is also this kind of left-hand smile idea that everything kind of flows back into the dollar when the world is falling apart. The Fed's gotten much more attuned to that. It's doing a lot more to truncate that left-hand side of the smile, of the so-called smile, right? Because they do the swap lines. They're available very, very fast. We saw this in 2008. We're seeing this again. So I think on the monetary side, the conditions for um, U.S. dollar outperformance uh, seem less marked. I think on the political side, there are a couple of other things. one is the, um, I think, increasing bipartisan concern about the impact of dollar strength on the U.S. manufacturing sector. And, you know, this is, it's not a coincidence that this comes at the same time when the upper Midwest has become, you know, the key battleground in U.S. politics and is, and is likely to remain so. Um, so, you know, one of the, one of the interesting things is that I, I think both parties, um, have shed their attachment to, uh, their, their attachment to, 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 to Rubenomics. I mean, everyone talks about it on the democratic side, but I mean, you look at, um, you know, what Josh Hawley is talking about, uh, for instance, um, that co-sponsored a bill potentially asking for taxation of foreign inflows. I think there's a broad-based story here that on the on 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 the currency side of the equation. The other thing about this is you really have to wonder whether the regulatory conditions um, for tech, for U.S. technology sector outperformance um, uh, continue because there does seem to be a backlash brewing on. Um, you know, on moats, network effects, uh, intellectual property, and so on. So, in addition to the tech story, I think the other big political question is China. And you had sort of Trump get more antagonistic on trade, and there's thoughts that Biden will be a more multilateral negotiator here. Do you, and, and do you see any, any sort of big picture commentary on China relationships and, and, and the currency impacts and how that factors into global allocations? I think. Uh, I, I think on on some level um, antagonism uh, is here to stay. You know that's that is that's not going that's not going to get rolled back. Um, what the Biden what, what the Biden team seems to be promising is a more coordinated multilateral multilateral approach, uh, which involves closer cooperation with the with, with, with the with the Europeans with other allies, which I think does help reduce the overall temperature of trade fictions. Uh, because it's not hitting anybody and everybody, right? You know, it's not. We're not going to have you know, like the steel tariffs against Canada and the EU. I mean, those kinds of things that just contributed to the overall, um, uh, you know, unpredictability of the U.S. of the U.S. trade policy mix. Those will probably go down. I think there's. I think another point here is that I've thought about. U.S. policy on China. There actually, I think there's, I think there are a few different factions here. There are what I call openers. Um, you know, people who just want to use U.S. trade muscle to open Chinese markets and to force them to give up some of their most objectionable practices. Uh, something that's kind of shared with the um, the Europeans as well, relating to IP, relating to IP forced technology transfer, theft. You know, all, all these things. There are the decouplers who want to completely kind of sever the U.S.-China uh, trade relationship. And then there are the repatriators, uh, by which I mean people who are not just upset that manufacturing goes to China. They're also upset that manufacturing goes to um, India or Vietnam or anywhere else that might potentially benefit from the redirection of supply chains away from China. And we've seen some of that, uh, you know, um, back and forth or confusion on Vietnam, for instance. Uh, 
I, so I think, I think at the margin, given the the hostility or rivalry is not going to go away, but I think for one thing it becomes more predictable. And I would suspect that the pendulum does swing slightly more towards the openers, uh, people who want to um, force China to open and get agreements on IP and things like that, because the configuration of of, of people who want that includes you know, large U.S. manufacturers and, uh, large, and, and large U.S. service exporters. The relationship as a whole has gotten sufficiently, the temperature on that has gotten you know, sufficiently high over the last four years. I, I don't think we can go back to the status quo ante, but it's still, it, it, it's still, it, it still probably makes a difference. The other point I'd make here regarding the large surplus economies in general is there's this sense that, well, if, you know, if we won't buy for them, they're, they're screwed. This is a, this is, um, I think in some respects, the most difficult thing about losing access to a foreign market is if your technological capacity has been determined to a very large degree by the FDI that comes in to serve that foreign market, uh, which I think was true uh, for China, arguably still is, but I think less so. I think one of my, you know, from a really big picture point of view, one of the things I kind of look at is the combination of state capacity and indigenously and indigenous technological complexity. Uh, how dependent are you on just the foreign plants to generate the kind of technology, technological capacity that you need to keep your economy going and advancing? And I think in Northeast Asia in general, starting with Japan, then Korea, then Taiwan, you've seen this, this I mean, exports were a key part of that. But you've seen, um, you know, it develop quite remarkably on its own. And my own personal view is that China is going down that same road. And the reason this matters is that if you're a sufficiently large economy, trying to find domestic demand to replace a loss of foreign demand is kind of is a political problem. And these political problems are hard to fix, but not necessarily as hard to fix as lacking that any capacity for the technological complexity itself. Hey, Jeff, hey, Jer, real, real we quick, are... I, know, I know you want to, um, you know, we're running up against time. It is Christmas holiday shopping season, so pun intended to put a bow on this. I, I just want to, I, I think what I'm hearing here and what I'm hearing in a lot of conversations um, talking to clients and, and financial advisors out there and, and even the general public, per se, is there does appear to be a shift, I think, for 2021, at least from a bond guy's perspective, to move into and perhaps have some allocations in the EMD, in the emerging market debt space, on the local EMD space. And that, that jives you've perfectly. Been, you've been listening to Behind the Markets. Have a great week, everybody. Thanks for listening to the Behind the Markets podcast. If you want to learn more about WisdomTree, visit WisdomTree.com. You can also follow me on Twitter at Jeremy D. Schwartz. I'd like to thank Patty Hall for producing our live program on SiriusXM channel 132 and our podcast producer, Daniel Bruno. Join us next week for another edition of the show. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu. 